this week, my 2024 preview, or the gaps and how to close them. If you're new here, today's essay is a little different from what you'll get most weeks because it is my version of a 2024 preview. I did write it a couple weeks ago, but haven't had time to record it yet, so just keep that in mind. Um, unlike other annual previews you might read, this is less, this is what I think is going to happen, and more, these are the table stakes, as far as I can tell. But first, I'm Quinn Emmett, and this is important, not important. Science for people who give a shit. You can hit subscribe right now to get this newsletter and my conversations with the world's smartest people every single week. So starting again soon. And of course, you can find the email and web version and links to everything at importantnotimportant.com or in your show notes. Again, hit subscribe to get next week's issue essay straight to your feed. So here's what I believe is set on course for 2024. But first... It's been 22 years since HAL 9000 locked the front door. Kyle Reese joined the resistance three years ago, and it's not going great. It's been nine years since the whole Gray's Sports Almanac debacle, and ten years since Deckard joined the LAPD. Four years since the gang wars in Neo-Tokyo, three years since Sergeant Rita Vertaski saved humanity, and one year since the Sentinels unsuccessfully tried to finish off Earth's remaining mutants. The future is coming and passing by faster and faster. 2025 is inexplicably next year, which is when Ben Richards toes the line, while Caesar and his lieutenants build a new civilization in the Muir Woods. Soon after, Zephram Cochran is born, Sequest DSV pops back up, Mega City One opens for business, and a rebuilt detective Alex Murphy gets back to work. In just a few years... Major Motoko Kasangi begins her hunt for the Puppet Master, and Matt Damon will get left on Mars, and we will spend an insane amount of money to get him back. Now look, as you can tell, I have spent a significant portion of my life in a collection of fictional timelines. It's easier that way. The aforementioned are just a very small selection of those. Most of the others are too far in the past, or too far in the future, or on or in entirely different worlds to really apply here. But it is 2024, and lately, real talk, the more distant the world I find myself in after work, the better. Whatever takes me away. And it's a little ironic, because part of the reason this newsletter and business got started is because I was a screenwriter and investor interested in exploring the fictional near future. I wanted to understand, share, and participate in how we get from here to there and then to live and work and build in the gaps in between. But now it's suddenly 2024, and as desired, my day job is the near future, and shit feels pretty real. Just saying the number out loud, 2024, feels like fiction. But now that I'm 41 going on 95, and dead to three very quickly growing children, it feels like everything is accelerating. Like the future is here every day, whether I'm ready for it or not. I'm not. Now I understand that's basically how time is perceived as we age, but also I think it's fair to look around and feel like things are becoming just a little bit untethered, at least from the Pax Americana world we, most of us, grew up in, uh, for better or worse. Your mileage may vary. In 2024, some gaps are closing, like what machines can do for us, and some are still widening. Gaps between COVID vaccine availability and uptake between childcare workers and children in need of care. 
between 4 million new homes and the unaffordable millions of homes we have now in the U.S., between fossil fuel profits and climate tech investments around the world, between healthcare costs and retirement savings, between the voluntary carbon market and real additive verified carbon removal. The good news, we can choose to close them, opening up new intentional gaps between what is possible now and what could be, and soon. When I originally wrote this a few weeks ago, it was four years to the week after I first mentioned a virus out of China in the newsletter. In our, it was a baby newsletter to a very close circle of family, friends, former colleagues, who were activists, philanthropists, policymakers, investors. And four years later, the work is both easier and harder. It's not a small closed circle anymore. We have almost 30,000 email subscribers and many thousands more online and here in audio and video. But the stakes mean I have to continually get better at my job, which primarily includes contextualizing the world systems and players and helping you understand what the hell you can do about it all. And in doing so, I do have to actively remind myself sometimes that 2023 was, despite COVID and TB and malaria and cardiovascular diseases, cancers and guns, among the very safest and healthiest years in human history. And that compound action is what got us, well, most of us, these enormous gains. And more. I mean, look, in 2024, employment is incredibly low. Labor is once again on the rise. We distributed billions of safe mRNA vaccines with refrigeration requirements that were out of control. Coal is almost done for, and we have more than enough food for all of our 8 billion people, even if it's grown in some weird places and we waste a huge amount of it. Now, there's some pretty obvious caveats to everything above. Again, your mileage may vary. And you can find our thoughts on those in our Monday newsletters and Friday essays from last year and going forward. But for now, let's do that. Let's look forward. Let's see what's coming. Compound action is what will help us spend 2024 and the years to come attacking the remaining low-hanging fruit of human rights. From maternal health to access to nature to hunger, clean air and water and electrified housing so we can most comfortably and confidently and ethically reach for a near future that is absolutely cooler than this one. So, let's talk about it. Economists and certain politicians would like you to believe that vibes should be very up. But for a lot of folks, folks on TikTok, folks who can't afford kids or daycare for their kids or healthcare or who were kicked off Medicaid, folks who see a slim house majority populated by historically unproductive white supremacists and Nazis, folks who support Trump still and or more than last time, and folks horrified he's just crushed his primary opponents, folks living in one of our many, many parking lots, folks who lost caregivers or loved ones or colleagues over the past four years, folks who look around and notice literally everyone is sick with something right now, who see war everywhere. Well, for those people, vibes are middling at best. If you've ever been in a very small earthquake, it's pretty disconcerting. It's like being out on the open ocean, but even more so because the ocean moves all the time, but land is not supposed to move. And in either, you are made to feel suddenly very, very small and powerless. So maybe like an earthquake, we just feel like more of our world is out of our control than ever before, which is interesting vis-a-vis -vis the next 12 months and what's happened in the past 12. Now, as I noted in a recent Top of Mind, more than half of the world's population will vote this year. Taiwan just voted. 
Immigration is on the mind everywhere. Inflation is on the mind everywhere, despite and often because of an otherwise booming economy and soft landing here, at least. Inequality is on the mind, even as that, like everything else, will drastically change hands in the coming decade. Not for better, probably. I mean, billions of young Indians and Africans will, of course, increase their incomes and wealth, and that's incredible, but also the West's richest elders become even older today and faster every day as the great wealth transfer as we call it, gets underway, and inheritance replaces entrepreneurship as the new primary source of wealth. I don't think it's farcical to claim that the weird vibes are at least in part because many people seem to feel a lack of trust, a lack of representation of agency in our current systems. Which is understandable, but the reality is far better. You've never had more information or power to drive change on the local level, wherever you live from citizen assemblies to literally just running for whatever office you can get your hands on. Either way, because the vibes are so middling, and because, for example, that the far right loves to cosplay as Indiana Jones bad guys, there has never been a better time to give a shit, to show up, to yell, and to march, and text, and call, and write op-eds, and knock on doors for the world that you want. So here's some just macro notes before we dive into our typical verticals here. Even with all the elections this year, including here in the U.S., it feels like, despite everything else, and unless there's some climate-related October surprise, climate will probably play a small part in the U.S. election. Why? Well, there are 183 conflicts currently underway alongside a messy, slow, singular energy transition that isn't just about climate change. A transition away from the backbone of GDP since our great-grandparents. The S&P 500 has been crushing it, despite 500 institutional investors calling geopolitics the biggest market risk in 2024 in the World Economic Forum's recent global risks report, which is not rosy. Voters have far less confidence than ever in science after the past few years, and as disinformation reigns, and more than 10,000 research papers were retracted in 2023. That cleansing, I guess, maybe is overall a good thing in the very long term, but it is not going to be fun along the way. Science is hard, of course, but people already had some serious whiplash when science went more or less live in 2020-2021 with enormous stakes. They haven't forgotten that. So what else? There are fewer pandemic-era worries about supply chains as jobs continue to shift from China to India, but trade requiring the Red Sea and or the Panama Canal, so most of it, should really be a worry regarding both climate and war, which really we should be more prepared for. However, I'm certain of very few things, but the systemic deconstruction of journalism as a whole remains among my greatest concerns, including the recent culling of all these lauded new climate desks among them. For as much as I value, for example, The Atlantic, my hope is for more representative, intimate, nonprofit outlets like Capital B and The 19th or the Community News Fund uh, to thrive. Can a WhatsApp or TikTok-forward reputable local news wave better capture real local problems and measurable solutions on voters and the marginalized? Hopefully. Can we teach ourselves to thrive on positive news? Or will democratized, monetizable disinformation just wipe out whatever credibility remains? I, I don't know. So much is happening. So much is predictable. So much is out of your control. And so much is within your grasp. 
with the right tools and information. Now, despite the headlines, some of which are from me, we've reduced newborn deaths and extreme poverty to the lowest shares on record. Life expectancy is so far up and marginally, inexcusably, back down again. A little bit. Death rates from disasters are way lower than historical averages, even as more disasters become more prevalent in more populated places. We can do better. We have to do better. We can neither make excuses nor rest on our accomplishments. There's too much to do and too much evidence that compound action works in the past century, decades, last year, this year, and in the long term. So we have to talk about progress again and what we're capable of. Not progress at all costs, but because the words we use, the art we make, and the stands we take are what build a better future for everyone. Let's talk about climate change. 2024 should, somehow, be hotter than 2023, in year two of El Nino, with some possible Pacific hurricanes, plus the ongoing droughts and floods already hitting Latin America and the Caribbean. Recent decarbonization efforts have gotten us so much farther than we think, but current policies won't get us anywhere near where we need to go. Meanwhile, expect insurance markets for homes, offices, and crops to remain chaotic, as farm workers are still left out to bake in the sun. In the U.S., where actual carbon pricing remains a dream, the new Climate Corps, all 18 to 26-year-olds born well after Armageddon dropped on DVD, will get started in 2024. All while the U.S. continues to produce more oil than any country in history, and climate tech funding tries to pick up from a 30% drop in 2023. So we got nowhere to go but up here. The consumer-level IRA rebates should start to finally roll out in earnest, and if paired with literally any interest rate drops, please, they should be warmly received, except probably by car dealers. Uh, wind turbine service tech is projected to experience more growth than any other American job in the next 10 years, followed by nurses. Nowhere is that more obvious already than in the Texas Permian Basin. Global emissions might still be rising, and still inequitably, but per capita emissions peaked. We have basically decoupled emissions from GDP, and that is a home run that many people said was impossible. We have to build on that. Chinese emissions may finally stabilize in the next couple years, a huge effort, but are nowhere near being cut in half, which is what we need. Another example, German emissions are down, but mostly because of energy imports and reduced industry. Everywhere is different. Everywhere is the same. It's going to be a slog. We're not doing enough yet, but it's going to be worth it. So the U.S. again is retiring almost entirely on new industrial policy to right the ship from lithium to batteries to chips. Um, so many factories are in planning or under construction thanks to the IRA. And while it'll take some years for them to come online, most, but not all, should survive, I hope, while the U.S. solidifies its position and lead as the world's energy exporter. And U.S. fossil fuel companies continue to shell out dividends like, well, there's no tomorrow. Well, for them at least. Look, in any country, the long-term trend is what matters. We have to overcome interest rates and disinformation, a lack of public interest and poor messaging, and dwindling public R&D funding, where the U.S. has been absolutely crushed by China, who, despite a cratering economy, have capitalized and have a monopoly on minerals and production, birthing just invaluable companies out of nowhere, like CATL. Energy poverty isn't a given anymore for so many countries, but it's still there. And part of that is because clean energy projects remain more expensive to build in developing countries than in rich northern ones. 
In countries like Colombia and anywhere, frankly, millions of voters and consumers still think a cleaner future means a lesser quality of life. Back here, despite establishing the North American Charging Standard, which should finally pave the way to a massively more unified and reliable charging situation by, I don't know, 2026, Tesla has its first real car competitor, BYD, which is a Chinese company. And if BYD can become as profitable as Tesla, which is less profitable than it briefly was, it may really be game on. And across the world, that's the case. India, now the world's most populous country, is building tens of gigawatts of clean energy every year, but it has big plans for coal, too. Clean energy has scaled and has become incredibly cheap, but as is obvious with offshore wind, we can no longer rely on that drop because of how much we need to build. Huge upfront investments with an impossibly long return on investment will become less of a thing if the other bottlenecks are addressed, like if permitting reform actually happens, if we help developing countries pay for these things. So will new SEC rules and Bank of London rules about greenwashing and climate disclosures help clarify things a bit? I think so, but I also think the pressure has never been higher on them to not do that. It's shocking to actually write this, say this, but the only thing more intractable than permitting reform is finding the not-Chinese minerals for this renewable energy transition from copper to lithium. The future of batteries and EVs is on the line. Maybe 2024 isn't the year here, um, but I'm not exaggerating when I say that migration and immigration will be the story of the next 10 years, and we are so unprepared. It is already part of every election. It will be a part of every election to come until we, at the very least, and as Isaac Saul over at Tangle so frequently writes, train and hire a gazillion more immigration attorneys and officials. A wartime effort, if you want to call it that, that should be at the very least mirror the aforementioned new climate corps. We have so barely even glimpsed the tip of the climate migration iceberg, a metaphor I'm now realizing like a rising tide lifts all boats, that we should probably retire now. Anyways, critical infrastructure is increasingly threatened by climate impacts across the world, driving people to move all over. And many are still suffering from the pandemic, from frontline health workers all over, to public transit, to real estate and insurance markets and hospital databases, while other pieces are literally sinking or at risk. Some of this will come under renewed threat, in 2024, but much more so will affect our children and other people's children. They're all our children, as James Baldwin said, if we don't get our shit together right now. The great news is this. We no longer face a world of three Celsius or four Celsius increases. A huge achievement with positive tipping points drawing closer. But while we haven't reached it yet, 1.5 Celsius also looks out of reach now because of the compounding emissions we are still putting out every day. What about 1.6? I'm here. This exists to fight for every tenth we can prevent or even claw back. And if we're going to fight for every tenth, we have to work on every single piece of the emissions puzzle, not just the biggest ones and sexiest ones. Efficiency gains, methane leak tracking by satellite, which is super cool. Heat pumps out selling furnaces, Geothermal, soil health, girls' education, and EVs chasing an S-curve are all invaluable pieces of the pie of our arsenal. 
but we have to also have to acknowledge what's slowing the whole thing down. Not just blatant fossil fuel emissions, but greenwashing and a dangerous voluntary carbon market. Let's talk about health and bio. It's never, again, never been a better or safer time to be alive. Full stop. And we are really just not doing a lot to address our stagnating life expectancy rates, nor war, famine, or cardiovascular diseases. Despite advances in detection and treatment, cancer is somewhat inexplicably on the rise in young people, and we can no longer count on the low-hanging fruit of just reducing smoking rates to do our work for us. Prior immunity from exposure, infections, and vaccinations mean COVID deaths and hospitalizations are way down despite the current wave, which is still the second biggest after Omicron but they're still both unacceptably high. I mean, mid-RSV and flu season two, while booster uptake among those who are one, eligible, and two, most vulnerable, remains middling at best. Mask prevalence is even lower, and funding for long COVID trials and treatments remains scant compared to the millions suffering still and anew every day. This all while the Florida Surgeon General is trying to basically kill everyone in the villages. The only thing more dysfunctional than our late pandemic situation is apparently your mitochondria, which do not enjoy long COVID. Now look, hold on, you might say. I'm young and healthy, and only a small percentage of people get long COVID, so maybe I'm right to be among the 80% of eligible Americans who haven't gotten the 2023-2024 booster. And I would remind you that the boosters are effective in preventing severe disease from the current variant, that any variation of long COVID absolutely fucking sucks and isn't worth the risk, but also that the virus does not stop with you. When you are infected with a virus, however young and hot you may be, and truly good for you, you are newly eligible to infect someone else, say someone who is immunocompromised and or 60 or older. It is a virus, not a stub toe. It is called public health for a reason. Hey everyone, it's Quinn, your host and the founder of Important Not Important. I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about the INI or any, whatever we're calling it these days, membership and community. It's a gathering place really for our most dedicated shit givers, a place to connect and learn from one another and to have access to me outside of the newsletter and this podcast. We started it last year, and it's grown to hundreds of shit givers from all kinds, from around the globe. I'm talking about teachers and investors, students, electricians, journalists, artists, scientists, and policymakers, and, and more. Members get exclusive access to our daily news homepage, which is very cool, and to much more top-of-mind weekly articles, research and tools that you can use and to stay ahead of the game, member-sourced action steps, twice-monthly book and culture recommendations that have nothing to do with the end of the world, virtual events, and of course, the membership Slack channel. Look, so many people come to us asking, what can I do? And we think we do a pretty good job of answering that question and providing context for the answer. But the best answers and the best perspective really come from the community, a wide-ranging community, and we would love for you to be a part of it, to feel supported yourself, and to contribute to discussions and actions alike. And of course, by becoming a member, you're directly supporting our work here and ensuring that we get to keep doing it. So if you'd like to learn more, 
head to importantnotimportant.com. And if you're already a reader, you can just hit the upgrade button at the top. If you're not, go ahead and subscribe for free and you'll see the option to become a member at whatever level works best for you. And as always, you can always find the link to become a member right in your show notes. So thanks for listening. And as always, thanks for giving a shit. Back to the show. So in all of this, with an aging population around the world, in immigration and shambles around the world, we need to rebuild and fortify our care. One foundational piece is to support, um, basically pay, at-home caregivers. And there's $37 billion from the American Rescue Plan that will do some of that. But it's up to us to make sure it's put to use this year. And if it helps, make sure we do more of it. So we can spend 2024 shutting polio down forever. And we can spend 2024 straight putting it to diseases like TB and malaria. But we can't simultaneously ignore how childhood vaccination rates have been faltering around the globe for four years now. And we can't ignore the rise of fucking mosquitoes and ticks and climate-enhanced vector-borne infectious diseases. Okay, let's talk about war for a minute. I don't know where else to put it. It fucking sucks. Will it continue to grow around the world? Will the U.S. and our allies uh, continue to fund Ukraine and Israel? Does our massive defense industry even have the capacity to do so? What the fuck are we going to do about Israel and Gaza and Iran and Iraq now and Lebanon and, and, and Yemen and the whole thing? What does mass disinformation over the next 11 months do to our tattered mental health? There's an election in 11 months. How will the platforms new and old bear them? But let's focus on positive mental health, because it seems like for now, like Azempic and Wagovi don't strain our mental health. This is wonderfully good news. But truly, like, what else can these wonder drugs do? And how long will it take to find out? And how long, when our drug system, from cancer to ADHD, is already severely strained, how long will they remain available? And at what price? GLPs are changing lives and economies. Is 2024 the year we start to see real secondary effects? Or do we need to make them drastically more affordable in order to see change at scale? Keep in mind there are 500 million people living with diabetes across the world. Another example, Cascavi, the first real CRISPR treatment, is similar but different, obviously, so you're welcome. The potential to change individual lives here is enormous, right? If nowhere near the population level scale of GLPs. But Cascavi costs... 2 million per treatment right now. Meanwhile, 70% of the world's sickle cell patients live in sub-Saharan Africa. It doesn't add up. Back to GLPs. If they seem to help with myriad addiction issues, what does it say, if anything, about the gut-brain axis? We talked about that recently on the show. What does it say about secondary market effects? What does it say about the fight over sugar and carbs and snacks and the rush to innovate on blood sugar measurements to regulate the price of insulin to protect and nourish our Mental health. What if it's nothing? What if it's in between? I don't know. I mean, look, I welcome cheaper drugs from Canada, but they're, again, context. A country with 38 million people cannot suddenly provide significantly cheaper drugs for a country of 325 million. So, lots going on there. Let's talk about food and water, which we've already covered quite a bit. It obviously stands outside of and fits neatly into both climate and health and bio. I've still got questions. 
Will 2024 be the year we sue water bottle makers for the microplastics that are just surfing their way through our bloodstreams? Will the U.S. West get more snow? They're getting crushed by water. Will they tax alfalfa farmers? What are we all going to do about our little groundwater issues we're having? Amid our retreat from groundbreaking safety net expansions during COVID, hunger is back on the rise, illustrating so clearly that hunger, like poverty, is just a choice we make. Luckily, some states are implementing their own childhood tax credits, and Congress is negotiating to bring them back. Across the world in 2024, amid war and El Nino storms, floods, droughts, nations will continue to try to understand how they're going to feed their people, much less keep up exports. In a year when fertilizer and shipping routes seem like they're going to remain pretty damn unreliable. Let's talk about, I call it beep boop, because I'm a child. But someone asked me recently why I still call it that. It's data privacy, AI ethics, uh, chips, supercomputers, quantum stuff, some biotech, generative AI, disinformation, cybersecurity. And I was like, one, again, I'm a child. And two, what the hell else would I call this just collection of chaos? The cloud? I don't know. I think of it like the term Climate change, one phrase that covers so much that's otherwise basically impossible to narrow down. Anyways, 2024 looks more like it's going to be more of like literally type type idea division video, putting animators out of work, actual vision pro, invasive and nearly invisible cool smart glasses, cars and TVs and X's that watch you and track you and listen to you wherever you go, especially and now accept at Rite Aid apparently. Whatever you say, they're listening. While your own personal wearable LLM gets you better the more uh, you take it with you. And Meta keeps pushing out the most transparent big models, apparently in teams run by women? Amazing. So consider organoid intelligence in millions of stable novel materials, just when batteries need them most. Consider what's coming. Incredible biotech increasingly powered by AI. Maybe that's inclusively considered. More mortgages and paralegals and traders and insurance powered by AI, but they need the same licenses as their human predecessors? Can the tech companies harvesting the data and building the models and selling the subscriptions to produce the contracts and images continue to rely on Section 230, all while they claim to protect kids and teens while reorganizing their entire structure to recruit more underage users? Look, we find ourselves surrounded by what everyone calls S-curves. But we don't have really any idea where along the curves we are and for which tools and how those will interact. We don't know what we should be ready for. It's why they always talk about there's a difference between setting expectations and, and preparation, right? We don't know what's a mirage and what's a distraction. And again, part of that is because things are moving quickly. And part of that is because, again, it's always been the same people, uh, white guys, building all this stuff. Uh, and bringing their own biases to it instead of uh, women and people who just aren't white guys and people of color being included in these conversations and including in these efforts and making the money off of these things. We keep shooting ourselves in the foot here. So disinformation, new materials, privacy, custom porn, revenge porn, copyright, old jobs, new jobs, shopping, relationships, videos, voices. Understanding the gap between how, for example, LLMs operate which is just predicting what an answer to your question literally looks like. And what we want from them is not only the key to managing expectations in 2024, 
but it is among the most evergreen threads of humanity. Sometimes understanding, much less closing the gap, takes time, right? Like it did for GUIs and GPS and more. However immediately useful they seemed at first glance, we had no idea how prevalent and varied they were become. The same thing with cars and, and planes. There are questions to be had about original training data running out, sure, LLMs basically reaching the end of the internet, and about new training on synthetic data and what that means for accuracy and, again, ethics. But for 2024, I'm mostly focused on the potential and issues that exist right now. Like nearly infinite disinformation, when again, half the world is lined up to vote. Old disinformation stalwarts like X and Facebook fired basically all of their disinformation workers, and new players like Midjourney are only beginning to grasp what damage they are capable of servicing. From Bangladesh to India, Indonesia to Pakistan, Mexico and the EU, populism is on the rise, fueled at least in part by disinformation at what is really a global scale. Um, let's touch on housing and jobs. I know we're a little all over the place, but that's because so much of this just fits together, and these are everywhere. In the U.S., we're still short someone like 4 million hopefully electrified homes and millions of electricians and nurses. But labor is kind of on the rise again. The WGA, SAG, I mean both, the UAW, among others, have set the tone for this new generation of labor activism, however low the actual participation may be, as the contracts for over a million more union workers end this year. Vibes are vibes, and they count in an election, if you vote on them. More on that soon. And you might just vote on them if you feel like the cards are stacked against you, that everything is too expensive, and fucking David Zaslav and Washington is telling you, no, it's fine, it's better than ever. Vibes matter. So, look, in conclusion, when all the world is watching live, as we've talked about, when all the world is more connected than ever before? Should we be surprised when hospitals and gas stations and more are taken offline by young people in whatever country on Chromebooks? Were you surprised at how well the 2022 midterm elections went for people who want progress in the world? Maybe don't be surprised in 2024 if they do. Be fucking vindicated. When Obama left office a thousand years ago, solar and wind were among the most expensive forms of energy. Today they're the least expensive, right when we needed them. That gap has closed. So you have to ask yourself now, thinking about this, do you want to be a meaningful part of the next 10 years or not? Do you want to help connect the insane 400 plus gigawatts of new renewables to the world's ripe for rebuilding energy grids? I mean, do you have any idea how revolutionary GLPs and mRNA vaccines are right now? Do you want to get them in more bodies? Do you want to help build different ones or fund different ones? Those gaps were closed over many years and decades because of people like Caitlin Carrico and all the many people who actually supported her. Again, because of critically important lab assistants and grant writers and janitors and more. Do you have any idea how fast the UK kicked coal? Do you know who worked to close that gap? Do you know how much worse off we'd be if they hadn't done all that work? Great. How do we convince India to do the same thing? Did you see how well the child tax credit worked? Do you know how many people benefited from the Medicaid expansion? That was someone's idea, and then they brought it to life and they fought for it, and many, many more people fought for it, and then it happened. Do you see how much change is possible? Do you see how much more reliable we can make our infrastructure? How much cleaner 
our air, inside and out, how much healthier our offices, our schools, our kids, and our elders. We can close those gaps if we choose to. But you also have to see how much corporate and political power, how much those systems are steadfastly standing in the way of us doing that. You also have to see then how much you can change those from inside and outside. Both are required. Now, these are all rational arguments, of course. And we are nothing if not irrational, alone and in crowds. But again, these are mostly problems of our own choosing. We can be irrational for good, too. That's what happens every time someone protests. People are going to do their best to protect their kids. And we know so many ways we can do that now because we've made so much progress. We've made so many strides. And because there are data and tools available to us today, we've never had before. You can track a whole school system's air quality live on a little dashboard. Beep boop. Let's make it impossible to run out of baby formula again, shall we? That's a choice. People want to feel better. They want reliable, good-paying jobs. So let's fight for job guarantees. Let's encourage labor. Let's make it easier for new industries to unionize. The only way we stop leaning on short-term wins is by completely reforming the structure from the bottom up with and by people who've been marginalized all along, people born and working on the front lines of the future. So much will happen that we can't predict this year. But no matter what, we remain the same. So I'm going to spend 2024 trying to close those gaps and more from the bottom up, put my dent in the universe. I hope you'll join me. That's it. Thank you for listening. I hope that sets you up for success or survival or something this year. Hit subscribe right now to get next week's essay straight to your feed and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen.